0: Guys, uh, we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, uh, the Methodists really dealt, they, they really treated us like royalty last week. That was just great. We just need to go over there every once in a while just let the Methodists treat us so nice. That was great. We started our study of 2 Corinthians, and you'll remember that 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter. And it follows a third letter, which was a tearful, painful letter of the Apostle Paul we made note of that last week. We're going to see it, especially this week, that's referred to. And that painful letter was sent because Paul had heard back from Timothy that there was a major rebellion in the church, and they were questioning Paul's credentials for a number of reasons. He wasn't eloquent like the super apostles that had come through there recently. Uh, he uh, wasn't mystical enough, and these super apostles talked about their super spiritual experiences and their mighty works. And furthermore, Paul was one who was afflicted. He was constantly struggling. And the Corinthians preferred to follow a guy who was going to be successful. Drove a Cadillac, had a nice hairdo, shiny white teeth, you know, buck shoes, you know, just looked great, you know, white belt, and uh, just was successful and uh, could tell everybody else how they could be successful if they just believed in themselves. These super apostles came through kind of like that. It was sort of like, you know, the success gospel. And so Paul, by comparison, looked pretty weak. His gospel didn't look as strong. So we saw how, uh, first of all, last week, we, we saw how we need to know how to undergo afflictions and to realize that God speaks to his church through messengers like the apostle Paul and others who follow him. He speaks through people who do suffer the afflictions of the gospel. We saw also last week that we're afflicted by various afflictions so that we can become the expert in helping other people in their afflictions. When you're afflicted, you're normally just thinking about yourself. Woe is me and all the troubles that you've got. What Paul is saying, you've got to get your mind out there and realize there's a larger purpose in your affliction. Number one, the glory of God. Number two, to... uh, to encourage and comfort other people. Paul says that we encourage you with the same encouragement or the same comfort that we received from God himself. And we saw how powerful that comfort and that encouragement is when we use it in the Lord, largely coming from the experience of our afflictions. And then we saw lastly last week that God calls on the church to pray. So when we are afflicted, we are most likely to look to the Lord in prayer. and I'm quite convinced that when the Church is superficial in her prayer when we're not really going to the Lord and asking for His power, and that's the only He's the only one who can give us real power to do anything good. And when we get fat and sassy and think that everything's going fine and really are living out the American dream and the success story of that you see on TV, gospel preachers, and we're really experiencing that, we don't really go to Him in prayer. So oftentimes afflictions will come so that God gets our attention again and gets us praying again, which is our primary ministry. So... Paul calls upon the church to pray. Now look with me at verse 12, and we're going to go all the way through uh, chapter 2 today, uh, and I think I'll read this in sections because of its length. We'll just take one section at a time. So let's first of all look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 4, and you can see the ESV marks that off as one paragraph. In fact, come, come to think of it, We're going to take these paragraphs just as they're marked in the ESV. So let's look at verse 12. Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge And I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Amen. Well, wow. This is known as a very passionate letter. I believe Matthew Henry calls this the, the pathetic letter in the New Testament. And by that he just means full of pathos an emotional letter, an affectionate letter. It really comes out. And we've seen how the character of a Christian man is always revealed when he's in struggling and strife. This is another thing that we must always realize about the troubles that are coming to us. When you have those troubles come to you, you have an opportunity to display Christ in ways that are far beyond what you had before. If you get cancer, your friends know about it. And they want to know how you're handling this. And it's amazing how they'll just hand you a microphone. And they'll almost beg you to explain to them how you're handling it, which is to explain the gospel. If you go through a very difficult situation with one of your children, they're handing you a microphone and a platform and saying, tell me about this. And you get, that's when you get your opportunity, usually above all other opportunities, to display the glory of Christ in the gospel is when you're under affliction, and we're going to see here how Paul takes this very distressing experience for him, and he turns it into one more opportunity to show them how Christ works in our lives through our sufferings, through their sufferings. So let's pick it up here uh, with with verse verses uh, 12 through 14, and you've got you've got to understand that. Think of this from the Corinthians' point of view. Let's, let's get before we start. Let's let's get in our minds how they would be thinking. They had a painful letter from the Apostle Paul that severely rebuked them for questioning his apostolic credentials, which was to question the authenticity of the particular gospel he was preaching. And he scolded them in no uncertain terms and put out a severe warning. Now, they are reporting to Titus that they have repented and that they were brought to deep sorrow and repentance through Paul's letter, and they want Titus to get that word back to Paul. Now, they would have several questions in their minds. They would wonder, first of all, is Paul going to give up on us? Secondly, we're going to see in Paul's letter how he helps them address the question, are we going to give up on ourselves? as a Christian church? Have we completely blown it? And then they must have a question, is God going to give up on all of us because of our disobedience? So these are the kinds of questions they're left with even after their repentance. And Paul realizes he's speaking into this. Is Paul going to give up on them? Are they going to give up on each other? Is God going to give up on them and, and the Apostle Paul and just write off the whole deal? So let's start here and see that Paul is going to show them, first of all, how he's not giving up on them. He is really making a serious deposit with them of the gospel in the midst of their afflicted and conflicted relationship. Now, in verses one twelve through 2, 4, this entire section we just read, we see here that we must account to those we serve, even those who afflict us. So when you're in a situation and you're being attacked, and in this case, unfairly, Untruly, unjustly, you still, as a Christian man, want to give a count. Jesus gave a count to Pilate, not answering all the questions Pilate had, but bearing witness to his father in court before Pilate. So when Jesus had the platform and the microphone, he showed what it is for a like a sheep to go before his shears and be silent. He did not open his mouth in one sense and yet. He did open his mouth when he said that my kingdom is not of this world. And he displayed why he was a man of peace even when he was being brutally uh, beat up. Well, here the Apostle Paul is going to give an account to them. So when you're under attack, the temptation sometimes is just to shut down, turn it off, give up. No, many times this is the precise moment when you need to give a clear testimony about what's going on. You give account. If you're being critiqued, you give an account for it. I'm a pastor of a church. If some people would unjustly criticize me for something, either a view I held or a behavior that I had, I have two choices. Either confess that I was wrong and how I was wrong and ask for forgiveness on the one hand, or if on the other hand I was in good conscience correct and they're falsely accusing, then it's my duty to continue to teach and to give an account So I'm accounting either through confessing that the criticism is well-founded and that I was wrong and I, I, I repent, or I continue the dialogue by continuing to teach. And so here's a case where the Apostle Paul was unjustly critiqued. There was nothing that he knew of that he could apologize for or confess. And so he continues to be held accountable to the very people he's serving. So he doesn't run from them. He gives them an answer. Now, look what he does, first of all, in verses 12 through 14. He carefully maintains godly standards. And he's going to use himself as an example. He's going to say, no, this is what I was doing. These were my intentions, and this is what I actually did. And in doing that, isn't he teaching them that maybe their motivations and their standards are not up to grade? That they're the ones who need to change the way that they think and the way that they act? So Paul is clearly here displaying his own godly standards. Now, first of all, notice that these standards are by the grace of God. He says in verse 12, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, I did certain things. So he's saying, I'm not taking credit for this in my flesh. This is not something I was born with. This is something I was born again with. This is something that God has given me. It's his gift to me. And whatever character we have, if there's anything good in us, it was God who gave it to us. Paul makes that very clear here. But what is it that God gave him? He uses the word simplicity. And I would just say one way to think of that word simplicity is there's a holy intentionality. The Paul says there's a simplicity in the way I was thinking and the way I was acting. I was simplicity, just simple means oneness or being of one mind. And Paul says there was one objective that I had. I was simple in that sense. There are many ways in which we're complex in a technological age. But the key to living successfully in a complex age is to have a simplicity of spirit and a simplicity of lifestyle. There's one agenda, and it's God's agenda. And Paul says, I came to you, by God's grace, in simplicity. I wasn't duplicitous. I was simple in my approach to you. It was your duplicity that misinterpreted my simplicity. And then he says also, godly sincerity. That there was a motivation from the center of my heart out to my outward behavior that was God-motivated. God's agenda was at the center of my heart And that's what was motivating everything for me from the inside out. So you have a simplicity that is worked out in life in sincerity from the inside out. Wow, what a statement of Christian character. And Paul says here that, if you'll notice in the very beginning, verse 12, the testimony of our conscience. And Paul, you know, makes much of his conscience. You know, in chapter 23 of Acts, when he's giving testimony before the crowd, he says, in, uh, or before the Sanhedrin, he says, in good conscience. Paul protects his conscience. Now, conscience is not perfect. We've seen this. We all have to have our consciences perfected through life and matured. Sometimes our consciences are weak, sometimes they're misguided. But whatever conscience you've got, you've got to learn to live to it and let it be your guide. You want to keep developing your conscience. But whatever it is you have, live in accord with it. And Paul says over and over again, I was living in accordance with the true conscience, the conscience that God has developed in me up to this point. So the first thing he does in giving account to those who are around him is to say, let me share with you what my real motives are. You know how it happens when you get into conflict, you start assigning the worst motives to the other person, and they start assigning the worst motives to you, and Paul says, let me just get this straight with you. Before God, let me tell you what my real motives were. And you know what, guys? We've got to be able to do this. This is the reason we have to keep living in good conscience. We have to keep living with simple, single-minded purpose from the inside out. So with a good conscience, when you get into conflict, you can say, look, I'm sorry for what happened, but I want you to know, honestly, before God, these were my intentions. And your intentions need to be simple and God-centered. That's what the Apostle Paul was able to do because of the way he had been living. So you can't go back and rewrite history. But if you were living history before the face of God, then when the future comes and you need to reveal what was going on inside here, back there, you can tell the truth and also set a godly example. Paul maintains Godly standards by the grace of God. Now, notice in verse 13, 14, it's not only by the grace of God, but it's for the good of the church. Paul says, we're not not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge. We want you to be able to boast of us as we're going to boast of you. Paul is saying all we do is for the sake of other people. So Paul is saying, we're suffering on your account. We're living godly lives as an example for your sake because we want you to be able to boast of us in that day just as we're going to boast in you. And gentlemen, your your example is so important. And the older you are, the more important your example is to be honest. Because you have more influence, more people are looking to you, more people are depending upon you to set the pace. And when you go off and you're dishonest in your business, you cheat on your taxes, you tell these little white lies, to defend yourself, or to protect yourself, or to justify yourself, or you're flirting with somebody else's wife, or you're unkind to your own wife, or you're not participating to the best of your ability in in the church where God has placed you. You're setting a terribly destructive example for scads of people around you. Paul says, I do this for the glory of God, but I also live my life for the sake of other people. And men are people who are always aware that we're caring for other people. That's what men do. We care for other people. We're willing to lay down our lives for other people. So you live your life always aware that you are affecting your environment. You're influencing other people. You're setting a godly example. You may say, well, I don't know. I think maybe I've blown it. No, you haven't blown it. Because we believe in forgiveness and restoration. We believe in repentance. And when you repent when you acknowledge what you've done and you repent, you're setting a godly example. That's exactly what I'm talking about is living a sincere holy life which means we're constantly confessing and constantly in repentance. That's the godly example that we want for our children and grandchildren. So Paul is very aware of this. This is the reason he's answering their silly little criticisms that are coming from amazing immaturity. And you'd think that Paul would be tempted just to soar over it and say, Forget these turkeys. But Paul is dealing with the little turkeys. And he's explaining to them the innards of his own being. He's revealing himself to these complainers so that they get a clear demonstration of the gospel for their sake. Not for the sake of defending himself, but for their sake. That they know how a Christian man is supposed to live. And Paul is saying to them, rather than you're thinking I'm living a life Contrary to the gospel, what I want to show you is this is the kind of life I want you to live. Let me explain how it works. So Paul, rather than going on defense, he goes on offense. His whole ministry is on the offense. So he's only defending himself for the purpose of having influence in their spiritual lives. That's the way men need to think. They were always trying to push the agenda of Jesus Christ. Forward. So he does it for the good of the church. Now let's look at verses fifteen all the way through the end of our the section we read, chapter two, verse four. And Paul here explains his actions. So he maintains godly standards by the grace of God and for the good of the church, but he also explains his actions because they need to be explained. It may be because of the spiritual immaturity of these people that they misinterpreted his motives, misinterpreted what he was trying to do, misinterpreted his ministry. But Paul, as this mighty apostle, condescends. He comes down to every man's level. comes down to our level. He says, guys, let me show you what I was doing so that you you won't think I didn't care about you or that I didn't have you in mind or that you're not important. Just the opposite. Everything I've been doing is for your sake. So he's seeking to elevate them and encourage them when he's under attack. The temptation. When you're under attack, it's to attack the other person or to write them off or just get rid of them. Paul doesn't do that. He actively engages them, and he's seeking their restoration. So when someone is attacking you, there's your opportunity to deal with them. If, if I get someone who's really angry about something, if I'm 30 years old, new in ministry, that scares the bejabbers out of me, to be honest with you. If I'm 63 years old and someone comes and complains, okay, I'm sitting there thinking there are two, two possibilities here, either whatever they're going to complain about, I was wrong and I need to confess it and ask their forgiveness. So I'm ready for that, and that will be good for me. And It will be good for him too to see that the pastor will confess his sins. On the other hand, if he's incorrect, he has stuck his head above the waterline, and now I know what he really thinks, and I have the opportunity above all, all opportunities to address either his bad theology or his bad ethics or his bad attitude and now it's my opportunity to go on the offensive with the gospel and gentlemen so many of you here are involved in ministries of various sorts some of you, a few of you have paid for it most of you not and it's very easy to get so discouraged when uh, conflict or uh, criticism comes you've got to realize this is a special opportunity. This is what Paul is doing with his opportunity. Yes, it takes a pound of flesh out of him. Yes, it leads him to distress in certain senses. Yes, he was massively discouraged at one point. And yet he doesn't lose sight of the opportunity that's in this moment. So engage it. Explain things. Get down to the bottom of it. And that's what the apostle does. In verses 15 and 16, first of all, he says that he he had about three different plans. And this is what threw them off. Paul had previously said to them, I'm going to come to you soon. And then they get this letter and know Paul. And then they said to him later, Paul, you write very impressive letters, but you're not very impressive yourself. So they were angry that he had sent a letter instead of himself. So he says, I had several plans. First time I was, if you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he talks about his plan to come see them. And there he says he's going to go through Macedonia like he's going now. Later he told them, no, I'm going to come straight to you and then go up to Macedonia. And now he's changed his mind again. And now he is going through Macedonia, and he's go down go down and see them second. And they're just confused. Paul, what's the deal? Are you making excuses? You don't want to come? You don't like us anymore? We scared you off? You know, they're, they're hurt, they're angry, they feel abandoned. So now Paul's explaining himself. And what's he saying? He's saying, I want you to understand what I was intended to do all along. I did want to come and give you a second experience of grace. Now, some of you who grew up in a second experience of grace tradition say, there's my there's my test verse right there, that there's a second experience of grace. You get saved, and then you speak in tongues after that. Or you get saved, and then later you really believe you're you're assured of your salvation you have two experiences no that's not what paul's talking about here anytime paul visited it was an experience of god's grace if you'll look in romans 15 you'll see him say something similar in different language he says i know i'm going to come to you in the fullness of god's blessing so whenever paul came he came giving blessings to the people can you say the same thing about yourself honey i'm coming home tonight and I'm going to come home in the fullness of God's blessing. <clears throat> How about it? Every time that we show up, we should come in the fullness of God's blessing. It should be a second experience of grace, a third experience of grace, fourth experience of grace. Paul was always taking them to a deeper level. He was teaching them the things of God. Every time he showed up, he would deal with new problems. He was always helping them in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he means here. And he says, that's our intention all along, so he says that's our intentions. Then you have to you have to see that Paul is addressing the question that uh, do we waffle? Can I not make up my mind? You want to? Just, yeah, I'm just trying to set that up. He says, do we waffle? Do I have a hard time making up my mind? Uh, do I am I back and forth? Am I telling you yes and no? Am I being vague? Am I lying or being deceitful? That's what he's. Saying here, that's what they were saying about it. And Paul says, no, none of the above. But look what he says. He says in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh? Saying yes, yes and no, no at the same time? Am I like a mere man when I make my plans? Do I make the plans because I'm thinking, oh, of course, the Mediterranean coast will be more lovely in the spring. So I'll come see you in the spring. Or do I say, oh, no, you know, there's a nice little place I like to stop, a little B, uh, B&B, you know, along the way from Macedonia. My favorite spot. No, I'll, I'll go that way. Do I make plans like this? No, he says, I make plans in Christ. Now look again at how Paul's life is being opened up for us in the middle of these afflictions when he's having to explain himself. And he's showing us that he doesn't equivocate He doesn't make plans according to the flesh. He makes plans according to his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the agenda for every single believer. And Paul is saying, this is the way I try to operate. So it wasn't yes and no. It was always yes. In other words, my attitude toward you is always one that is positive. Even when you're misbehaving, quite frankly, like you have been for the past two years. You've been misbehaving but my view toward you is always yes, he's saying. Why? Now, what we get to when we ask the question why is one of the most profound statements of theology in Paul's practical life. You want to know what the Christian life is all about? Look at these verses. And here he's saying our answer to you is always yes because Christ's answer to us is always yes. We've misbehaved royally. We sinned against the high and the almighty. And he has been gracious to us and sent his son to die for us on Calvary's cross. And we would expect God to equivocate, wouldn't we? When we look at ourselves making a golden calf in the middle of the wilderness. When we look at ourselves after we took the holy land. Establishing high places to worship other gods. And offering our children to the god Moloch. Wouldn't we expect God to equivocate at least a little bit? But Paul says, I don't equivocate because he never equivocated. His attitude toward us was always yes. He was always faithful. Now notice, we'll get something here as, a, as an aside. And we won't charge anything extra for this. But here he says, notice what he says about Christ. He says that in him, uh, all the promises of God find their yes. L- look at that, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, what does he mean by that? He's saying that God has made all these promises where? In the Old Testament. And he's saying that every one of those promises, that we would have more children than the stars of the heavens, he says to Abraham, that he'll have a land that will be his, all those promises, they find their yes in Jesus Christ. So that when you put your trust in Christ, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, and for you become a child of Abraham. So what it means to be in Christ is to enter the Abrahamic tradition and to receive all of the promises that were given to Abraham and to all of God's people through the ages. So Paul here is clearly talking about Old Testament promises, finding their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So this would refute any thought that ethnic Jews are supposed to receive the promises in the Old Testament and we get the promises in the New Testament. What's that all about? That's about misinterpreting the Bible. That's what it's about. Here Paul makes it very clear. Everything God promised, everything, no exception, is found in Christ alone. So if you happen to be Jewish but you don't trust in Jesus Christ, the land is not yours. The legacy is not yours. The future is not yours. You've been cut off. Because you cut off Messiah. You don't believe in him, the Jewish Messiah. If, on the other hand, you're a Gentile and had no right to accept these promises at all, but you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, then you receive all the blessings and promises of Abraham. That's what's being said here. Don't miss this all-conference verse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And then he goes on to say, Not only are we in Christ... And act in Christ. But we live by the Spirit. And here we have a magnificent statement of the Spirit. Wow. Just tucked in here. And this is the way Christian theology works when it's at its best. It's tucked in very practical life. When, when we were given the Bible, we weren't given a systematic theology. And if you've ever read a systematic theology, you know it reads like an encyclopedia. I mean, it's not easy reading. That's systematic theology. That's not what we're given in the Bible. What we're given in the Bible are real people with real-life stories, and this profound theology is tucked in that narrative. And so you have to pull that, those principles out of this story. So in Paul's story, we can see that he's thinking high thoughts. You remember we said, the old Puritan, Samuel Rutherford said, the picture of a godly man, head in the heavenlies, Feet firmly planted on the ground, hands on the plow. It's a very practical life, the Christian life. But the head is in the heavenlies. That's the only way you can do it. You're a very practical man. Got your feet on the ground, hands on the plow. But your head is in the heavenlies. You're thinking thoughts after Christ. Here's what Paul was thinking when he was doing these very practical things. That he receives all the promises of God in Christ and that he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And set apart by the Spirit of God for his service. That's what he's thinking. That's his theological framework for his eminently practical life. So if you want to be eminently practical, you've got to be a theological. And here's you see it here. He says that he was we are anointed by the Spirit. Now the word Christ means anointed one. So you see how Paul's playing on words here. He says, In Christ, the anointed one, are all the Promises of God. And we have been anointed. We, he says, are little Christs. Now, what does that mean? To be Christ, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, means that he fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament because those three offices were anointed. Here's what Paul is saying You've been anointed, so you're a prophet. You now speak the truth of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are the Isaiahs and the Elijahs and the Elishas of this world right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're a prophet. You're also a priest, just as the priest would pray for the rest of Israel and the priest would offer sacrifices and the priest would encourage and counsel the people. So now we believe in the priesthood of all the believers. So if you're in Jesus Christ, you become a priest you are mediating Christ to one another. You're interceding for one another. You're helping one another get closer to the Lord. We all have a priestly office. You've been anointed. You're also a king. Because just as Jesus Christ is the supreme king, the king of all kings, you're the kings over which he's the king. He's the king of kings. Well, you're the little kings over which he's king. What do you do as a king? You rule. You govern. You govern. You multiply and fill the earth from Genesis 1.28. You take charge of your area. You take charge of this city. You seek to influence it and to reshape it and to have it live in such a way that God is honored as its creator, your kings, rulers. So Paul is saying here that we are anointed by the Spirit. Notice, secondly, he says we're sealed. What does that mean? God puts a seal on us. He's got his mark on us. A mark of ownership, just like a cattle is is branded, a cow is branded. So we've been branded as God's people by the Holy Spirit, not by putting some fancy, you know, little fish on our forehead or something, but by the Spirit's presence, you've been marked out as His people. And thirdly, he says, uh, we have been guaranteed. We've been given a down payment. This is the word when he says, Uh, And He has put a seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as an uh, bone is the Greek word, a guarantee or a down payment. So you realize what's happened when you receive the Spirit and all of His power in your life right now, as wonderful and glorious as that is, that's just a foretaste, that's just the hors d'oeuvre, that's just the down payment that is foretelling the fullness of His blessing that's coming upon you in the last day when the Spirit is poured out without measure upon all the people of God. So whatever we experience now, whatever joys and delights we have now are not to be compared to the joys we'll have in that day. That's what Paul is saying here. And the Spirit reminds you of that. So let's go back and see what Paul is doing. Paul is showing his intentions and he's showing his principles in the way that he operates. He's basically saying, You interpreted me according to the way sinful men would operate. Yes and no, equivocate, not sure, vacillate, change my mind, make decisions based on what I want. What you missed is how a Christian man lives. He lives in Christ for his glory, according to his purposes, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I've been doing. So Paul is not just defending himself. He's preaching what it means to be a Christian man to these folks who have been critiquing him. Now, thirdly, notice he explains his affection. And he says here, Look, I didn't come to see you, and I sent Timothy instead because I wanted to spare you. Because if I had come in the fullness of my preaching and church disciplinary ministry, some of you may have gotten cut off. And the wrath of God may have broken out on you even more greatly than he did. And I wrote that letter with tears and sorrow and great affliction. It was difficult for me, he says. And I want you to know I didn't do that lightly. I didn't do it out of spite. I didn't do it because I was venting my spleen or because I was angry. I did it because of you. And I did it with great care. And one can only imagine what that letter must have said and how it was worded. When Paul put all of his heart and all of his passion into that corrective letter. Gentlemen, in all of your corrections with your children, with those who work for you, with those who are on the opposite political party, can you say that you correct with tears and with real affection and with a desire for their welfare? Or do you find sometimes that your words of correction are out of spite or anger? or even, truth be known, a desire to hurt or destroy somebody. Paul says that was not my intention, and it was not the way that I acted toward you. I had deep affection for you. And it's important in your working with other people, especially if you're working with them spiritually, that they know of your affection for them. If it's a genuine affection, no hypocrisy allowed, but if you have a genuine affection for the people, it will come through. And Paul is showing us here, how when the Christian man is flayed open and you look at his heart, you'll always find a heart of love for fellow sinners. Now let's keep reading. Uh, Look at verse uh, 5 in chapter 2. Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. In other words, Paul's now talking about those who were rebelling against his apostolic office. And he's saying here, Look, I don't mean this too severely, but what the one they were really sinning against was not me. They sinned against the body of Christ. They sinned against you when they rebelled against my apostolic authority. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or you may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here's what Paul is saying. Look, the man repented. You responsibly dealt with him with church discipline, something few churches do. When there's someone who's rebelling against gospel order, Our gospel truth, most churches just hope that they can ignore the person and just move on. Paul taught them you don't do that. You address that person, and if they do not repent, then they're going to end up being on the outside. And that's your final witness to them that their behavior is not gospel behavior and that they've chosen a non-gospel way, and it is your final message of warning of God's wrath on their head. So he's saying, you did the right thing by being courageous and following the instructions of my letter to deal with the rebel in your midst. And churches, if they're healthy, will always be doing this, always, until Jesus Christ comes back. If they don't do it, then they're going to have broken, dysfunctional family fellowship. Paul taught them how to do it. They did it. Now, in their growing maturity, they were... Bold enough to do what the apostles said, but they weren't loving enough to be able to restore the person after they repented. So yes, they dealt with the person, but then he repented. And here's what Paul is saying. First of all, he's saying we must encourage forgiveness for those who oppose us. And Paul is setting an example. And he's saying, look, don't you all hold this against this person because of me. Jesus Christ forgave all of my sins. And therefore, I'm forgiving anybody who does anything. Look, I'm one, says Paul, who killed people because they were Christians. Do you think I need to be forgiven? How could I be an idiocy for me to hold something against someone who was just critical of me? That's crazy. So Paul says, don't you all keep him out of the church on my account. He says, if you forgive him... I'm going to forgive him. Be assured of that. And he says there are two reasons why we must always forgive. First of all, for the sinner's sake, for his sake. He says if you've got to be even more skilled at welcoming that person back and comforting them than you were in disciplining them outside the church. So, yes, you can excommunicate, and sometimes you must do that if you have gospel courage and gospel devotion you will even work toward the excommunication of someone. But when they repent, you must be even more expert at taking them in and loving them. Because if you don't, if they're repentant, they'll be overwhelmed with their sorrow. And they will not be able to live productive Christian lives. And so for his sake, you all have got to come around him. Now, notice what Paul is doing. So many leaders, when they get attacked, here's what they begin to do. Richard Nixon was an expert at it. He had his secret little blacklist. And he would just cut people off. They never got invited to the White House anymore. He wouldn't give them any news releases. He just cut them off. And then he had his good list. I won't call the the blacklist what he called it, but you know what I'm saying. It was a bad list. And then he had a good list. And so the world out there is divided up Based on their loyalty to me. And some leaders do this today in the businesses in our community. You're either for me or against me. And everybody in that business and the politics of that business have to do with who's on the boss's good list. Now, Paul did never allow himself to become the message or the substance of the gospel ministry, he never allowed himself to become the victim. And so he, was gonna, he never allowed his following to be a following based on people feeling sorry for him or siding with him against somebody else. And you don't have to be an outwardly angry person to do this. There are many passive-aggressive people who outwardly can be very sweet and kind, but what they allow to happen is people taking sides based on how they were treated. So here's Paul mistreated, and he's sorely tempted. To look to the majority of the church that is angry about the behavior, the rebellious behavior of the minority and he's tempted to say, yeah, go get them boys. Let's just get a church that's a Pauline church. All aligned with me. Paul nixes that. He takes aggressive steps to see that it doesn't happen. And he says, you guys forgive him. Don't Fail to forgive and embrace this person because you think you're being loyal to me? No, sir. You're not being loyal to me because to be loyal to me is to be loyal to Christ who forgives all of our sins. So, brothers, when you're in leadership, remember you're representing Jesus Christ and it's his interest and it is his glory, his reputation, his loyalty that is the one we are to promote. Paul's very clear about this. So, it's for the sake of the sinner. Notice also, it's for the church's sake. He says, if you don't do this, Satan, we know his schemes. He'll divide you up. And this is the way Satan does it. He does it by personalities. You saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1-4. through 4, Paul dealing with the divisions in this church. They had a tendency to side up on loyalties, just like they did with their pagan gods. Oh, I'll follow Mercury. I'll follow Venus. I'll follow Paulus. No. We're all one in Jesus Christ. So Paul says the only way the, the church moves forward in its mission is when it's devoted to unity under a one common loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all submit our personal agendas to the kingly agenda of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now thirdly, let's look at verses 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest "'because I did not find my brother Titus there. "'So I took a leave of them and went on to Macedonia. "'But thanks be to God, "'who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession "'and through us spreads the fragrance "'of the knowledge of him everywhere. "'For we are the aroma of Christ to God "'among those who are being saved "'and among those who are perishing, "'to one a fragrance from death to death, "'to the other a fragrance from life to life. "'Who is sufficient for these things?' For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. We must trust the Lord with those who oppose us. So we don't, if you're opposed, even unjustly, you don't take it into your own hands to wreak personal vengeance, to get things right. You leave things with the Lord and trust not only will he deal with your oppressors in his own way, in his own time, but he will also take the affliction you're undergoing and he will use it for his glory and the advancement of the gospel. This was Paul's confidence that in his lowest moments, whether imprisoned, shipwrecked, or beat up, that he could trust that the Lord would advance the cause of the gospel through Paul's sufferings, even though it made no sense to him at the time. Now notice, first of all, we trust his providence. Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This is like the procession into Rome. When, when the Romans had defeated Jerusalem and were bringing all the slaves into Jerusalem. There's a You can see it on the, uh, uh, on the Arch, Arch of Titus in Rome even today. the uh, sculptures of it. And Paul is saying that's what it's like. We're like the captives who are brought in. It looks like we're very weak. But do you realize that we're actually being brought into triumphal procession under the lordship of Jesus Christ? And Paul is always arguing with these Corinthians. They think that to be a successful Christian means that you've got all the money you want, you have all the prestige you desire, you have all the popularity you could ever want, and you have good health. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, oh, so you're like kings. Well, he says, what happened to us? We ended up like the trash at the end of the procession. So we're apostles, and we're at the end of the procession like refuse, and you're the kings. Well, wonderful. How? Be nice if I could be like you. But rather, he says, I want you to be like me. And realize this is not the day of your glory. This is the day of the cross. The day of the is coming. And so now the cross and the gospel are advanced not through human strength, but through human weakness because we're in submission to Christ. This is Paul's lesson here. And it's so desperately needed in our day. We get so discouraged when we're actually carrying the cross. We carry the cross. We're under oppression, under affliction, and we think God has abandoned us. Paul is saying, Oh, contraire, hop along. It's just the opposite. That when you're under the cross and you're under this kind of affliction and oppression, you are advancing the kingdom of God. You can trust His providence for this. And we trust His power. Paul says in verse 16b, who is sufficient for these things? And you expect Him to say, well, nobody. Who could carry the cross of Christ? Who could advance the gospel? Who's sufficient for this? You turn to chapter 12, and Paul gets a message from the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you. God is all sufficient and he makes Paul sufficient in Paul's weakness. That's what he does for you. Lastly, we trust his word. Paul says we're not (coughs) peddlers of God's word. We don't preach for money. But with sincere hearts we speak in Christ before the very face of God. Paul has his mind on God and his glory, his reputation. And he speaks Christ with a clear conscience before God. Now, This is what it means for any Christian man to go through gospel afflictions. That rather than hanging our heads and feeling as though God has abandoned us, rather than letting other people think we've abandoned them, no, the gospel life is different from the American dream. It really is. And Paul is teaching the Corinthians. It's different from the Corinthian dream. And we have to reshape our thinking. And thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession, even though we sometimes look as though we're a bunch of defeated wimps. It's through our weakness that his strength is made known. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gospel message and for the strength by your spirit that you give to weak men like ourselves. And we pray that as we face our afflictions today and throughout the rest of this week, we will look to you for your providence, trusting you for your providence, and for your word to work richly in our lives, that we may be a blessing to those around us. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, James. Sorry. Do what? Do what? Well, I'll tell Rob, and they can check the connections. And do sure it works. Hmm. I don't know. Well, thanks for working on it. We eventually got to go on. Huh? <laughs>